as they uh, go. Just a reminder, you've heard it before, but uh, we are in this, se this summer series over uh, June and July talking about interruptions in Scripture. Uh, we have looked at and we will continue to look at how we sometimes avoid interruptions, sometimes they're fertile grounds for us to encounter the Lord, and sometimes we are desperate to be interrupted. We see in Scripture that, that it is God who does the interrupting and that often God will invite us to petition and call upon Him. And, and today we are going to look at it, uh, an interruption, and, and see how these things can be opportunities, places where actual uh, deep-watered uh, life can, uh, can flourish. And we're going to do it um, through a very little-known, talked-about passage called the Good Samaritan. Um, should be, uh, should be great. It's in Luke 10, 25 through 37. But before we hear God's word, let us go to the Lord in prayer. We all pray with me? Jesus, there are few stories in Scripture that we know as well as this one. And yet, when we open your word, and we gather in your name, we believe that you speak. You speak with the same authority and power that you spoke creation into existence. You speak with the same uh, grace and love that Jesus spoke with. And so we pray as we hear this, we might have the courage and the faith to believe that you are speaking to us. And you are indeed inviting us to inherit eternal life. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So beginning in verse 25, listen for God's word for each of us this morning. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But the man wanting, wanted to justify himself, and so he asked Jesus, and, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho where he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? 
The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I want you to take a minute and and think of someone or something that inspires you. You know, it could be a story, could be a relationship, uh, you know, something that you're connected to, someone you know, or just something, something you've heard about. I just want you to think of something maybe recently, in the past, that's inspired you. And I'm going to ask for a couple of you maybe to share, if, you, if you're willing, in a second. But as you're thinking, uh, I'll take a second to, to state the obvious. Uh, there's a difference between being inspired and, and being impressed by someone. Same as there's a, a difference between inspiration and, and just desiring what someone else has. If you follow college football, very few people uh, would say Nick Saban, the Alabama football coach, is inspiring, right? He, uh, people are impressed by him. People want what what he has or what he's achieved, but I think most of us would admit that, that Saban, he cultivates fear and jealousy far more than hope or excitement to live as he lives, you know? People talk about him, they're like, I want those championships. No one's like, he's just really making me think about my Tuesday in a, in a fuller way. After all, inspired uh, comes from the Latin word that means to breathe into. It's, it's not imitation or coveting. It's for something to give us a sense of new life. So, have you thought of someone or, or some event or some story? Would anybody be willing to share briefly? This is my time. I've got stories to tell, but I am interested to know. Can you think of somebody or a person of, that's inspired you and, and a reason why? Yes, Kristen. Cool. If you didn't hear, she went to this journey of generosity and, and the stories of how people creatively and it seems like personally were able to live generous lives was inspiring. Anybody else? We'll do one more, so don't, don't freak out. We're not going to stay here forever. Anyone else? Yes, Walter. Yeah, the men's Bible study, I remember him telling this story. He was on his way back from a mission trip in Haiti, and there was a child who was coming, uh, who couldn't hear, uh, or was coming to get his hearing fixed, and he, he puked all over Colin. And, but Colin got to know him, and, and it was just an incredible story. Uh, somebody, uh, 
who's inspired me recently is my mailman, uh, Kirk. Uh, like the captain, as he told my boys, who had no idea what he was talking about. Uh, and Kirk is just incredibly kind. That's the, only way, that's the best way I could know how to describe it. He knows my name, knows my kids' names, he knows my car, and so if I see him on the route somewhere, he like honks and, and waves to me. Uh, we only have been there sitting in our new house six months, and he gave us a Christmas card, and we gave him a Christmas card, and we're not special. He does this for all these people. And it's inspiring to see someone use a duty, a task, uh, as a way to engage others with sincere love and care. It doesn't make me want to be a mailman, but it does make me want to work how Kirk works. Uh, I got other ones, you know, like uh, Karl Barth, famous theologian of the 20th century, how he only really preached, I've mentioned this before, to prisoners. That's where he went to, to proclaim the gospel, not at uh, big institutions or fancy speaking engagements. If Karl Barth's not your guy, Johnny Cash, same sort of thing. The way he was willing to go play for prisoners. Uh, at the end of the day, for me, it do, these inspiring moments, and I think some of your examples uh, hinted at this, it doesn't matter if the person is rich or, or poor. Um, what, uh, in Scripture, we see it like the woman who gives her last coin in the offering, or Zacchaeus who's very rich, but is willing to uh, invite Jesus over or have Jesus invite himself over for dinner, give up his certain status. No matter what the story is, if we can think of something that's inspiring us, I think there is a common thread in these things. And it's that to be neighborly is to be inspiring. To be willing to see another person as a child of God, is where the Spirit breathes new life into people. I want you to think about it. Think about something that's inspired you. I bet that person, in some way, was willing to give up a certain way of living to be neighborly to somebody or somebody's else. When someone chooses to go from being defined by the world uh, to being defined as a neighbor, that being the most important thing, that is a way of life that moves us. I've started calling this the, the inspiration gap. Like, you could be, if you were to think about it, I should have made a graph, but I don't know how to use Excel or anything like that. So uh, if you were to say, like, you, maybe you're like a wealthy person or a successful person, you're up here. Neighbor, let's say, is always in the middle. Or you're a, you're a poor person and you're down here. It doesn't matter where you are in the line. If you are willing to give up whatever status someone has told you to pursue or told you you can never pursue anything but, and love somebody well, it's inspiring. And the further those gaps are, usually the more inspiring it is. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, it, it seems this, this truth about neighborliness is just hammered from every angle. The parable is initiated uh, by this uh, scholar of the law because he's looking to earn a certain status, right? 
He wants this, a certain eternal uh, assurance, but it ends with Jesus inviting him to have the status of neighbor, to be neighborly. That answers his question. Jesus basically says, stop cluttering your life trying to earn some worldly affirmation when what you want is actually found in the everyday ability to be present and responsive with those you meet. That's the status you're looking for. And then within the parable itself, all three people have been given a status by the world. The priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan. They've all been labeled. They all have an identity. And two of those are kind of elevated, impressive ones, and the Samaritan's a little bit lower. Uh, but the point is not that the devalued person is only one who can be neighborly. And no doubt the, uh, the priest could have given up his status and become ceremonially unclean, helped the person. That would have been equally as inspiring. Instead, I think the point is, it's just that the first two people, the priest and the Levite, they assume that worldly status is the priority. That that's the most important thing, that they live into that identity. And therefore, they're too busy to be neighborly. They're too busy. They might be more impressive, and, and they might have more people desiring what they have, but only the good Samaritan in this story inspires. And it all leads me to feel confident claiming, claiming three things. In Scripture, we can have no higher status than to be a good neighbor. That's as good as it gets. And you could say, what about following Jesus? And in this passage, Jesus says, to follow me is to be a good neighbor. That's the highest status that we could have. And it is an inspiring way to live. Not because the Bible says so, but because of the stories our life tell. Number two, we often value other statuses or identities more than neighborliness. And then number three, the greatest sign, at least in my opinion, that our mindset is disordered around this, that we are not prioritizing neighborliness, is busyness. Busyness. We are busy trying to achieve something else. Prioritizing something else. And that might seem kind of a bold thing, but social science backs this up. There was a famous behavioral science study that took place in the 1970s at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. I was at Princeton for a year, and I'm really glad they didn't do this study when I was there. It would have been a hard thing to carry with me for the rest of my life, like a scarlet letter. But in essence, it was this. This guy invited some seminary students to come to like a seminar. And at the seminar, he said, uh, we, are you a Christian? And they're like, yeah, we're Christians. And they're like, great, we want you to go prepare and teach a lesson on the Good Samaritan. And if you've never been to uh, seminary, um, a speaking gig 
is like the holy grail. You love you some speaking gigs, especially about Jesus. And so everyone, I'm sure, is like, yes, this is great. I love this. Uh, and so they all get to work, and they're all doing it. Uh, and then the, once everyone was finished, the study said, uh, the guys who were doing the study said, uh, all right, you're going to go give your uh, lesson over here on the other side of campus. And what they didn't know was there was uh, all, the only way they could go, they were going to put someone, it was like a four-foot alleyway, they were going to put someone who was very clearly in need on the way to give their lesson on the Good Samaritan. And so uh, what they did is they divided everyone into three groups. There were people who had plenty of time before they were having to speak. There were people that if they had just walked over to a regular place, they'd be like right on time. And then the last one were people like, when they said, hey, you're going to go give this and this is where that, they were going to be late no matter what. So they do this study. They walk, everyone has to walk by this person's clearly in need. And of the people who left early, 63% stopped, which is pretty shocking. We're talking about seminarians going to give a good Samaritan. So already at the beginning of the day, only 63% stop, even though they have time to stop. People that are on time, 45%. People that are late, 10% of people stopped. In the end, the more busy and preoccupied a person was with their speaking role, with what they had to do, the less likely they were to stop and be neighborly. And of course, there were circumstantial pressures putting on it, but life is a messy thing, right? 10%. Much like with the priest and the Levite, it's easy to judge those people. But this study is a reminder of how easy it is to make good things ultimate things. For me, it's, it's a reminder how easy it is to be consumed and, and drained by preaching and use that as an excuse to not be present and neighborly before or after a service. I'm doing these good things, and this is where I've been called to do it, and to forget that my first and primary call is to be a good neighbor. In the end, we can assume we would never act this way, but if we are busy people, how many of you are busy people? Both science and Jesus literally say otherwise. That said, I, I should pause to clarify one thing. I am not implying uh, that faith is only possible for those with enough uh, means to carve out margin. Okay? After all, there are many people in this world who have full schedules and little rest and no choice in the matter. But hopefully we can see the distinction I'm trying to make by remembering the guy in the ditch in our passage. If we were to imagine this parable taking place in modern times and our victim is sitting half dead in the, in, you know, on the side of the road and he gets a call from his friend asking if he can help move him to a different apartment, he's probably not going to tell his friend, sorry, I can't, I'm really busy right now. Those aren't going to be the words that come out of his mouth. Ditch dude, he's got a full plate, but he's not busy. He's not in pursuit of non-neighborly status. 
He's fully occupied trying to return to being able to be neighborly. And if you're in that situation and there are seasons where people really are in that situation, there's lives that are that situation. There's no shame in that. In fact, we want you to be honest because what we're saying is there's no greater honor than to be with those and to walk alongside those who are in need. But most of us are not in that kind of need, are we? I read an incredible article recently in The Atlantic on people's relationship to work where the author said for the first time in the modern era, the wealthy work more and not less. That even back to the 1980s, it was middle class people would probably work the most, but the wealthier you got, you used that wealth to to not work as much. And now it's the opposite. People are working, the people that work the most are the most wealthy. Many of us have chosen busyness. And therefore, it's rather convicting to hear an early church, Latin church father like Hilary of Tours describe busyness as moral laziness. More recently, C.S. Lewis continued this thing, claiming that lazy people are busier than non-lazy people. He said, by lazily advocating the essential work of deciding what we actually believe and what we want to prioritize in our life, by not working to establish our values and set faithful goals, other people end up doing it for us. And reflecting on this, Eugene Peterson writes, what ends up happening is, We find ourselves frantically at the last minute trying to satisfy a half dozen different demands on our time, none of which is essential to our vocation to stave off the disaster of disappointing someone. In the end, we are busy not pursuing our God-given call to be a good neighbor. No, we're busy trying to carve out the kind of life we think would make people want to be our neighbor. Let me say that again. Good neighbor is as high as it gets. And instead of making that the priority, we try to pursue a life where someone would want to be our neighbor. I want to be like that guy. I want to hang out with that guy. But we, friends, we know That is not the path to a cup overflowing. That'll never be an inspiring life. And sure, a lot of what takes up our time are not bad desires. Most of our days are probably filled pursuing really good things. Like being, say, being a Levite. Or a priest. Or a good Samaritan lesson giver at Princeton Theological Seminary good things. But we have seen what kind of fruit pursuing these labels as our ultimate desire produces. Which is why Rowan Williams says the true disciple is an expectant person, always taking it for granted that there is something about to break through from the master, something about to burst through the ordinary and uncover a new light on the landscape. A disciple of Jesus is someone who orients their life so they are always ready to be a good neighbor. 
Because that's who we believe God is and who God calls us to be. So how do we do this? Well, I think since our calendar so often reflects the status that we are pursuing, and this is what Peterson writes, actually. He says, if we want to prioritize being a good neighbor, our schedules should probably reflect that. We need to get neighborliness on the calendar. And on the back of your order of service, I give you a couple of uh, thoughts and you can take it home with you, but I don't necessarily uh, mean that we should schedule good deeds, although I'm perfectly fine encouraging that. But I think we can start by saying disciplines that help us practice being open. Things that help but get us in the habit of being expectant. That God might burst forth. Like put on the calendar times of silence and prayer. Rhythms to help practice listening and patience. Time set aside to expand our imagination. Like reading scripture engaging the arts wherever possible we need a calendar that reflects and expects God to burst through at any moment and that might mean waking up early so we're not rushed in the morning or carving out an extra 30 minutes for lunch even though there's no reason to think we will need it but the primary thing we want to do is to be present and neighborly to those we encounter I know all of these things might not be possible for us. My wife gets like 22 minutes for lunch as a teacher. She can't add an extra 30 minutes. But no doubt there's ways for us to do this. And I just wonder what it would look like as we go to work and take our kids to sports and map out our nightly activities to claim our greatest hope in these places is to be a good neighbor. And that our calendar could be opened by a stranger and it would reflect that priority. It can feel a bit scary, but may we never forget God isn't asking us to give up our deepest desires. God is inviting us into an inspiring life. And so let me just close uh, with this story. It's about some guy who most of us know well, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers to you. Uh, I mean, few dudes have uh, embodied what we're talking about more than Mr. Rogers. The guy's theme song is, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Uh, and there's this incredible video of Mr. Rogers speaking before Congress where he's advocating uh, to keep funding uh, for his neighborhood of care, as he calls it. Uh, and the congressman in the video, and, and we're just going to show a brief glimpse of it, uh, has never seen Mr. Rogers' neighborhood before. Uh, and he's against giving these funds. All right? And...
All right, pause right there. We can go on. You should just go watch the video. It's good. Did you see that guy? Did you see uh, um, he, uh, this guy? Maybe it's just me. But it, Mr. Rogers says, you've made this day a special day just by being you. Says, maybe it's just me. But that guy's looking at him like he has been desperate to hear those words his whole life. His whole, at the end of the thing, he says, I'm supposed to be the tough guy, and this is like the most, uh, like, butterfly or, or something like that that I've ever, I've ever encountered, and I guess you've just earned your $20 million or something like that. The guy is transformed. He's like, where has this news been? Where have these people been to tell me this thing? But you know what really gets me? I think Mr. Rogers' whole testimony is honestly super cheesy. Super cheesy. He's telling this little poem song to a congressman about, hey, you're special just the way you are. And then he keeps going, talking about, he sings another song to him. If someone did that to me, I'd be like, all right, I'll give you the money to stop singing to me, please. And I never even liked Mr. Rogers growing up. Even now as an adult, I'm like, it's not really my thing. It's kind of, kind of weird, kind of bland. I don't want to emulate him. I don't enjoy what he's doing. And yet I can't help but be profoundly inspired by Fred Rogers' work. And what's inspiring is to see a person who is committed with his whole heart to neighborliness. To go to a congressman, and he says this at the beginning of his video, I have a whole 10-minute philosophical treatise as to why you should get this, but I just want to talk to you. Because I think being a neighbor is what it's all about. What's inspiring is this is a man who, honest to goodness, thinks being neighborly will change the world. And the more you get to know that guy, the more you're like, I want to be like him. Maybe not exactly, but I want to have life that breathes into other people like he does. And so it doesn't matter if we are Mr. Rogers, we're getting vomited on on an airplane, we're a Samaritan walking on the road, we're a mailman named Kirk. If we begin to put our faith in the way of Jesus, we are one interruption away from an inspiring, spirit-filled life. Let's put it on the calendar, because there's no better way to live. Will you pray with me? Jesus, your gospel message is so simple, it is us that make it confusing. When you are asked, what does it mean to inherit eternal life? You say it is to be a good neighbor. And so where we have pursued other statuses, we pray that we might hear that we are a loved child of God. And that we are invited out of that new identity to be neighbors to all we encounter. Knowing you are with us that your spirit can, will continue to breed life into us and into others. 
and that we will be able to have a life and relationships that look like the kingdom of God. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.